0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, January 30th, 2023. On the show today, news and two special guest stars. It's like an episode of Riverdale with Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall. Then in our main segment, Jim gives us the history and future of the Swiss family treehouse. Let's get started by bringing in the man whose self-care tip is to be more like I-95 and never stop working on yourself no matter how much other people complain. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? (laughs) It's going well, then, But based on my own personal observations, it's the very best
1: way to do self-care, to be like the people out on uh, working on I-95. Well, that means your daily self-care routine should get underway right before the sun goes down and involve a team of people in reflectivists who surround you with orange barrels and traffic cones. And then they have to clear that same material away just before dawn. And also, I guess I should mention here, Nancy looks lovely in bright orange and a heart. (laughs)
0: And Klieg lights, right?
2: There we go. There we go.
1: We got it.
0: <laughs> By the way, uh, uh, our, our producer Aaron Adams yesterday was uh, called me because he was actually talking to the uh, head of the Florida Department of Transportation. Ooh. And I was like, "Okay, uh, tell him tell him this self care tip," because I had it ready for you for today. And he's mm-hmm. like, "Yeah, I'm not going to do that." <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very cool. I tried. I tried. Okay. All right, let's do a quick shout-out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Jeremy Inman, Danny Farrell, John Grigas, and Mitch Norris, and longtime subscribers Willie Crocker, VCause91, Jeff Kelly, and A.D. Perkins. Jim, these are the cast members who meticulously maintain the grass-roofed buildings over at the Norway Pavilion and Epcot's World Showcase, including Kringla Bakery Aga Cafe and the Royal Summer They say the best part of the job is contributing to a culturally accurate architecture that's also super friendly to the environment. And the biggest challenge is to keep the goats who eat the grass from falling off the roofs. And they add, yeah, we're talking to you, emma Sophia." True story. (laughs) (laughs) Bang! Bang! Yeah, (laughs) very sad. All right, folks, let's do the news. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destination's trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, one quick piece of news here. In January of 2022, Disney announced that Hollywood Studios' newest restaurant, the Roundup Rodeo Barbecue, would be opening in Toy Story Land in 2022. And this week, Jim, we finally got an official opening date. Mm -hmm. And because I'm trying to be more accommodating this year to Disney's media relations team, I'm going to say that the opening date for Roundup Rodeo Barbecue in Toy Story Land is December 113th, 2022. For those of you still clinging to traditional concepts of time, that's March 23rd,
1: 2023.
0: Oh. Well, that's like leap, 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 leap year. All right. Got it. Okay. (laughs) All right. So food is served family style with some choices available. So the first thing everyone gets is the Prospector's Homemade Cheddar Biscuits served with sweet pepper jelly, and they look good. I'm a big fan of cheddar biscuits. Also, everyone gets a choice of salads. So you get a tomato salad, a romaine and kale salad, and a watermelon salad, which is entirely plant-based. That's basically cubed watermelon with freshly torn mint leaves. And that tells me, Jim, that there's uh, some college program kid from Indiana whose job is to tear mint leaves. (laughs) In a kitchen somewhere. You just know that that's happening. But he'll smell great when he goes back <laughs> Exactly. Just fresh. You know, every time he's near someone, they're like, do you have any gum? I like some gum. <laughs> there we go. You know his nickname is Wrigley's. All right. Also, Jim, uh, there are meats available. There is evil Dr. Smoked Ribs, which are pork ribs slow cooked for hours. And they have an on-site smokehouse, which is kind of interesting. I think that's mm. going to make the entire land smell great. Okay. Also, beef brisket. My favorite name for anything on this menu is there's a sausage in my boot <laughs> <laughs> okay. and barbecue chicken. Oh. Uh, for, for plant-based options, which you can also get, slow-smoked cauliflower, oven-roasted bratwurst, and bratwurst is in quotes. Mm-hmm. I always love it when food is in quotes. It's like, okay. I can't believe it's not butter. Well, what is it? It's not butter. And then uh, impossible rib chop seasoned with spices. Okay. Uh, for sides, you get four sides one the married spuds which is loaded mm-hmm. potato barrels which resulted with green goddess dressing you get force field fried pickles Ooh, fried mm-hmm. pickles are still a thing the slinky dog mm-hmm. mac and cheese that's how it's written mm-hmm. bucking baked beans i cannot wait to hear that pronounced by semi-drunk tourists <laughs> cow poke corn on the cob mean old potato salad <laughs> I <laughs> hey. oh, yeah. I am loving this menu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, veggie slaw and campfire roasted vegetables. Mm-hmm. For uh, desserts, you get cupcake a la Forky, mm-hmm. a lemon blueberry cheesecake, Billy's chocolate silk pie, goat's apple pie, and Gruff's peach strawberry pie. No word yet, Jim, on reservations or prices, mm-hmm. uh, but Disney has said that it's the same menu for lunch and dinner, so same cost either way. Mm-hmm. Also, Jim, you and I have seen some underground video, if you will of the inside of Roundup Rodeo Barbecue. And for me, the first time I saw that video, Mm -hmm. it was like answering the question, what if we served food inside the Toy Story Mania queue? What do you think about the uh, the restaurant, Jim?
1: Realistically, it is a consistent look for the whole conceit of this land, which is, again, it's Andy's backyard. And hell, if you look at the exterior of the building, it's supposed to be a cardboard box that Andy set up as this restaurant and drew the characters with crayons so it's a consistent look face it you're coming here for the menu which as a fan of the polite pig over at disney springs mm-hmm. i love the, the vegetable offerings here can't wait for you know get over there and get give those a try but yeah i think it might be a trifle busy inside but i i don't think anybody's going
0: to this place for the decor i worry about the noise level because it looks like everything there is uh, is going to be loud and i'm wondering if this is going to be the uh, the toy story version of the rainforest cafe or the t-rex place over at disney springs it just looks loud
1: yeah yeah i mean even docking bay at seven when we were in there late last year, I was kind of startled at how loud that
0: space was. So It was I mean, loud and it was small. And this is going go. to be loud and larger. <laughs> yeah. you know, which, again, that's what I look for in a dining experience. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And speaking of food, we want to welcome back our first <laughs> special guest star for the podcast. You know her. You love her. It's Christina Harrison from touringplanes.com, here to talk about all of the food at Epcot's Festival of the Arts event, going on now welcome back christina
2: hi guys that was a big sell do you think <laughs> that, um <laughs> feel our pressure do you think that it, the menu sounds like to me regal eagle like i got less polite pig and i got more regal eagle
0: smoked ribs beef brisket sausage Beans. chicken i mean yeah those are all yeah. regal eagle
2: curious yeah. i'll be there
0: is there a, does regal eagle have a smoked cauliflower no Hmm, okay, so that might be new. They, um, I wonder if the um, do they have uh, fried pickles? I think they they do. Do they, they
2: absolutely do? They do.
0: Interesting. They the really and cheese, cool. Um, and they've got baked beans. Oh yeah, yeah, interesting.
2: Yeah, there's an Instagram you should follow. I'll send you the link. They do this kind of thing. It's yeah, us. Is
0: it at touring Place? It's, it's us. Spoiler <laughs> <a good laughs> alert! It's <last week. laughs> us.
2: <laughs> Literally, Regal Eagle revisited. Mary and Joseph. What do you know? What you pay me for? You just send the check. All right. I,
0: there's a, I, I consume fine. a lot of social media. It's,
2: it's, it's okay. Fine. You're busy. It's all right. All
0: right. So last week, Christy, you and I were at Festival of the Arts, and you were there um, on, on opening uh, day. Yeah. And your goal during Festival of the Arts was to figure out what the best values were and what to avoid. Why yeah. Don't you, uh, why don't you tell us what you learned? That's here?
2: always my goal. Okay. So uh, the most popular thing to come out of the festival was the video of you devouring – that having a privacy moment with the pastry <laughs> Morocco.
0: Oh, yeah, Jim. Have I told you about this? Everybody uh,
2: knows, uh, Len.
0: Uh, uh, have you I, seen this, This Jim?
1: one might have gotten by me. <gasps> I get I not okay. No, All we've right. had three snor- you, uh, snowstorms in five days. I've been outside shoveling. What All did right. I miss?
0: All right. So, Jim, you know how baklava is made with phyllo dough layered with butter, honey, Certainly, and this, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Imagine that, but then deep frying it.
2: <sighs> with white chocolate pomegranate. Milk, chocolate, orange. So we get when we go around. We had um, a lot of our friends with us. Ham was with us, and Bethany Vinton and Jeremy was there. And Colin him, him from is uh, Hannah, Audrey dish. And, Yeah, there were a lot of us. And, and Maya. Okay, so when I go up in order, I just get two of everything because the whole point is you like you don't want it to be too expensive, but it needs to be something you can share. It's a food festival, right? So I get two. <laughs> so Len tries. There's a video of him with his first. Privacy moment. Len tries the philo pocket and walks Jim, away from it, me. Jim, it was he doesn't want to be on camera. It was
0: like it was like every every neuron in my brain that has a receptor for addictive things fired at once. Oh,
2: we forgot all of our home amazing. training. There was it
0: was amazing. All of our yeah.
2: all of our manners was, yeah. was all gone, and then came back the next day. And at at that time I knew better And I just got him his own plate Because we were with our mother and I didn't want her to see him like that So
0: I love the idea of someone going Okay, we're going to take the filo dough, the butter, the nuts, (laughs) the pistachios, and the honey And we're going to bake it And then we're going to cook it again Like that's just genius It's so good, Jim And
2: then orange chocolate, et voila
0: Oh. Yeah, because the orange, the orange chocolate, you know the the citrus flavor, duh, cuts the sweetness exactly of the does. fried baklava.
2: <laughs> you need acid with a sweet; it's really important.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
2: that's just yeah, that's what, that, that's just good that's, what that needed. Yeah, that's Jim, just a good They
0: give you three pieces, Jim. I could eat one, maybe one and a half. It's that.
2: You are a bull faced liar. I literally have video of you demolishing it.
0: <laughs> okay this, this is the part where we have to tell erin to cut that last part out
2: okay. <laughs> it's on the internet <laughs> i'm gonna post it again when we're done with this anyway okay okay so two things i want to mention number one italy is just they're just taunting us now i mean the prices mm-hmm. went down okay and and france is the new italy i dare say I don't know. Mm. The whole booth at France was $41. I to, just, to
0: buy one of everything. Not
2: one thing. <laughs> I hated everything. I thought it was all terrible. Italy was what? What, what,
0: are, they, what, what are they serving? What are they serving
2: in France? Oh, there was a Milfoy. Now, it's all mm. technically beautiful, but I mean, I'm not a culinary student. I want like, mm. you know, you want good stuff that everybody's going to eat or almost everybody's going to eat. And right. if it's going to be expensive, it needs to be something like the mussels at Craftsman mm-hmm. Courtyard, where you know it's it's sort of um, like a common dish. But I'm not going to be able to make it myself for 750. I'm not going to go to the mm-hmm. trouble. I'm not going to go to the store. Really beautiful. So you know something like oh, so that.
0: Mm-hmm. I would. The mussels were, were the mussels were, were great. That's uh, that, that's a pretty large bowl of mussels. Oh, it's wonderful. With garlic bread on the top.
2: Oh, it was outrageous, but um, okay. So in France, they have the the one thing that was really stunning was the beet Napoleon. Do you remember that? It I was saw it, a little but stacked.
0: But but when you think of French patisserie, do you think the flavor of beets?
2: Okay, this wasn't for you. You're a carnivore. This is a plant based item. <laughs> So this you're not the target audience.
0: I like to think I have a Gallic sensibility and I will and, and You, you know. do not. <laughs> <laughs>
2: we are a hardy peasant stock. <laughs> oh I, I think
0: what I mean by that is I, I periodically call for people to be guillotined. Maybe that's what that I, right I yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay.
2: I amend, I amend my prior statement. Okay, yeah. Obviously. Okay, you go. are you are you're a dainty thing. I'm I'm a peasant hardy childbearing hip. Stock. Okay. <laughs> so this is <laughs> this is a boy. <laughs> so like if you watch um the Great British Bake Off, you're of course you're gonna feel like you already know what it should look like, like I do. But anyway, it's just everything had this um this is one of the uses of the balsamic vinegar boba that made its appearance at this festival. Oh, right. That is devil yeah, yeah, spawn, yeah, yeah. it's like evil mm-hmm. in a spherical shape. It yeah, tastes yeah. like it, it, anger. it comes from, it
0: comes from the ovaries of Satan. Yeah. I'm and sure.
2: hatred. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. but you pay for it, so it makes you hate it more. Yeah.
0: Like if you if, if spite was a flavor. Yeah.
2: Right. No. And I understand the process vaguely of like reverse verification and literally just because of the olives at is it Aleppo? Yeah. That's the only reason I understand the process. So but there's these bobas are in two places. I'm not sure what's happening if we got like a a discount on the balsamic vinegar, but just avoid if you see it. Just absolutely not. Just assume it's absolutely. not. Yeah. I would skip France altogether. The other thing I
0: thought that was weird in France was they—they're doing a savory croissant.
2: They've had like that garlic? before the truffle one, but it's false truffle, fake, false. Yeah, lies.
0: It. Yeah, it's a it's a petroleum based truffle, right? It's not actual truffle, truffle. It
2: tasted like.
0: It tasted artificial.
2: Like like a forest floor smells. But not in a good way.
0: But th- but not the good way. Not,
2: not in like the some. Not in like. Wow. Oh. Not in sort
0: of like a. Do you know what I'm not saying? Not like a like Jane, Jane Austen. Go-
2: <laughs> not in a snow white way. Like. Oh, and then all of the animals come to you. It's more like. Oh my God. Is that mold or dirt? I don't know. <laughs>
0: Okay, so you liked uh, – l- let's go back to what you liked. You liked the mussels. You and I ate the uh, – was it the carne asada at Mexico?
2: That is outstanding and that is beyond my price point. I am cheap.
0: This was 10, 10 or $11. When, right? but yeah,
2: even two, with your – even with the corporate card, I'm still – $10 to me. It's got to be stupendous.
0: But that was two really, really nice pieces oh, it's of so good. beef. so It's like four bites and it was – Really cooked perfectly, like a, a really nice medium rare. Like I'm, I was actually surprised that a food booth could get that consistency. Why right, I out said of that beef. If
2: yeah, you would read what yeah. I write, I said that. I also said, um, it's just easier to have you on the show. It is. It is. It's better that way. <laughs> um, also, I said it was, and I stand by this. It's like when you make a really good roast and then yeah. the drippings at the bottom like the way that they mm-hmm. did the onions and they really took yeah. their time like i love a good reduction oh mm-hmm. it is scrumtrelescent it is well worth the ten dollars <laughs> and i i don't say <laughs> that about right. anything else because i i'm <laughs> old like i remember decades ago when food and wine it was like 350 maybe like four dollars or something yeah you
0: know you yeah and now it's now you're gonna yeah mm-hmm.
2: well okay so a couple other really good things which We've done surveys for years now on Instagram, and we say, like, what's your budget? What's a reasonable budget um, for a food festival? And most people say they're really comfortable with $50. Now, obviously, this doesn't take into account alcohol because alcohol is crazy, crazy expensive. And honestly, if you're going to buy alcohol in Epcot, you should only be going to La Cava, and you should only be getting the seasonal Negroni, which is, like, the best thing Javier has ever made. Wasn't it that great? That was so
0: good. Oh, was, I don't like Negronis, and I was like, you know what I need here? I need a fireplace to drink this next to. Well, <laughs> like, it's, I, it's if, remarkable. if you guys could set, if you guys could set fire to something in the pavilion, I could just sit next to it while I drink this. That would be. Outstanding. Yeah, that's the only yeah. money you
2: should spend on, on alcohol. I mean the yeah whatever the toasted and and marshmallow, La cava
0: and Negroni, but yeah,
2: ooh, so good. Okay, so a couple things that I. Stood by last year that I still stand by this year. And they didn't go up in price. A couple things. The Valrona mm-hmm. chocolate from Deco Delights. That's the purple one. Like you could see like Blanche Devereaux going out on a date. And that would be what she would order. Because it, it's very like Miami Vice vibes in the back of my head. But it's delicious. And it's like okay. three, four different textures. Like none of it's. Easy to do, but it's all just gorgeous. And the the size is the same, which I love because a lot of things it's not, like the brie in France, much smaller. Right. Uh, the okay. um, risotto, even in Canada, which is still outrageously good. It's smaller servings.
0: All right. And we're, where in Epcot do we find this? Echo Delights. Uh,
2: okay. So you know where the old Starbucks is when you first come into World yeah. Showcase? Okay. It's right to the there. Right.
0: okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay.
2: Yeah. What and, else is good? Oh, gosh. There's so many things. Okay. So Germany, of course, is. They just can't do anything wrong, it seems like. But especially the um, red wine short rib. It's $8.50, so it is a little bit pricey. But it has parsnip puree, which, you know, is sweeter than potatoes. It is delicious. And then I even sprung on my own dime for the frozen rosé. I wouldn't do it on a cold day like this, like it's in the 60s. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be in the 80s again next week. I'll probably get it a few times. It's so good. We used a fork. We were like perched on our trash can and a spoon <laughs> and we didn't have any forks and they don't have sporks for this festival, which I don't know why. Mm. So I was like, whatever, I'm going to use a spoon. And it is literally a spoon tender. It's, it's really good.
0: Really? Oh, it's so good. That's interesting. You, you mentioned the weather. Like One of the things that we, we talked about when we were there was how a lot of the people who were with us uh, tasting the food at Festival of the Arts now seem to prefer Festival of the Arts to food and wine.
2: Oh, absolutely.
0: Because it's, th- with the cooler weather, you can have things like soup and not feel like you're eating on the surface of the sun.
2: Well, it's not just that, like Festival of the Arts has that, I mean, that's a good point, but Festival of the Arts has so many things to do that spark your brain a little bit, not to use like a figment quote, but you can your do the paint by numbers. So you're, you feel right. like you're part of the festival and you get the little – and it's free. You get that little strip that you get to take home and you get to put in your scrapbook. You get to do chalk art. It officially is for children, but whatever. I'm a 48-year-old child, 49 <laughs> now. And you can sit and – when do you do chalk? I mean, I, the only time yeah. I do it is with Gigi. You get to do – like now they have the little pin tables again at the Odyssey. So there's – Oh, right. We yeah. didn't We didn't
0: talk about this. This is um, – at the Odyssey, they brought back the – old Imageworks pin tables where you've got a bunch of steel pins hanging down from a table and you can rub your hand against them to make shapes or do things. Mm-hmm. This was, uh, Jim, this was original opening day Epcot Imageworks features that they brought back to uh, to the Odyssey.
1: I saw that, which leads me to believe that there's some interesting warehouses along I-4 <laughs> that you exactly. need to break into <laughs>
2: You guys got to know somebody. I won't take pictures. Um, and then the other thing is the the thing that a lot of people don't take advantage of is the Animation Academy. You get to learn how to draw a character from a real Disney animator. It is free. It is part of the festival. So Ooh. it's also the best weather we have. Like I'm freezing today, but it's 65. So the rest of you, you know, Northerners are walking around just vibing, just loving yeah. life right now um, because it's there's no humidity. Everybody's hair looks good. You're not right. boiling, literally boiling. Um, food and wine—it's hard until yeah, about food and wine starts in November. S-
0: starts in July this year. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's really yeah till the very end. It's all super hot. All right. Um, what else was uh, was good?
2: Okay, so a couple of things from mm-hmm. Modern, which is the donut box. up up the Test Track. <laughs> oh, this is over by Test Track. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The Angry crab was the only thing that we liked from there.
0: I like this. This was a deep-fried soft-shell crab, it right? Was so
2: good, and it had the sriracha yeah. sauce, which that, I'm a spice weenie, and that's not that it's not bad at all. Like it, it was nice.
0: Right, I, I thought th- I thought that was one of my highlights from the festival as well.
2: That was where they had that watermelon Mary with that also had the balsamic boba, and I literally could not swallow it. It is foul.
0: Yeah, this is the first and last time I tried it, and I was like, yeah, mm. that's not great. Yeah,
2: yeah I wanted it's to it. It's super
0: swallow. strong, uh, super strong vinegar taste, which, I mean, it's the only, it's the, it's as a drink, doesn't make any sense.
2: Yeah, I could say more. I won't. Okay. The, um, <laughs> oh. okay. the tomato soup with the pimento cheese, bacon, fried green tomato grilled cheese from pop eats it's only 650 this is the best grilled cheese they've Ooh. ever done it's so simple and this tomato soup is really really good like you know it has like it? tons of heavy cream and they put fresh herbs and then you get to keep the little can which i have like four years worth i use them for makeup brushes um <laughs> it's adorable That's it's fantastic. a neat little souvenir
0: and where is uh where's the pop eats booth at
2: Pop Eats is at the front. It's right behind Deco. So it's near the old Starbucks. Just as you come yeah. into World Showcase, it's to the right. All right, cool. Yeah. What else? And then I also loved the pretty much everything this year, which I didn't love last year, mm. the Deconstructed Dish, which is right there, too. It's a neat little trio of booths right there. So you have you have Pop Eats, Deconstructed Dish, and Deco. So you get your soup. Your sweet, your savory, crunchy, your dessert—it's wonderful. But they have the best onion bread pudding. So I've been researching recipes because I need to be able to make this. But if you Mm -hmm. just look at the pictures, first of all, the key lime curd—you can see the key lime zest. Love
0: that. Oh, because I hate
2: a false something like the. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like the yeah, like
0: the fake truffle oil. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Like the banana pudding at Regal Eagle is fake banana flavoring.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And is it really? It is offensive. But this is because
0: bananas are expensive. Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I don't know. I it's easier to mass produce and I understand that. It's adorable. But this is all very it's all real. It's wonderful. It's so well done. It takes a minute because it is all deconstructed and they're very particular about the way they played it. It's all gorgeous. I mean it's festival to art, so you know, give them a hot second, have a little more patience because every mm-hmm. plate is supposed to be beautifully presented.
0: Okay.
2: But I love mm-hmm. it. I love this festival. It's really short, obviously. It ends in, what, 14 more days. And then we've got Flower and Garden, which is also going to be awesome, the beginning of it. And Flower, of the
0: Flower and be Garden begins March 1st? March 1st. Yeah. And runs through July, right?
2: Yeah, so the end of it will be <laughs> mess. But the beginning, the butterflies <laughs> are going to be so gorgeous, and it's the topiaries are amazing. There's flowers on everything. Love, love, love. That's it. Oh, um, the Encanto booth. That was the one thing I was going to tell you. That's the only booth that serves breakfast. Say. It opens at nine. The breakfast is just a uh, breakfast empanada. It's eggs and I believe chorizo um, and cheese. It's delicious. It's not on the menu on MDE, but it, it is open. Mm. And they do have coffee, but it's the only food booth that is open for breakfast. And that that location Every single mm-hmm. festival is the only one that's open, like no matter what it is, is the only one. It was Hayam for Festival Holidays. That was open for breakfast too. It's the only right. one that's open for breakfast.
0: Okay, so this is the booth that is near Morocco.
2: Between Morocco and France, yeah. So whatever it is, whatever festival it is, that's the one that opens for breakfast. They open at 9 and then immediately okay. switch over, you know, at 11 o'clock.
0: Okay, so if you're going from Remy to Frozen Ever After, you can stop by. It'll be on your right for some breakfast on the way there yeah
2: i mean you, technically you have to pass the boulangerie, which why would you the line is really mm. long but if you know if it's too long then yeah the, whatever festival it is they definitely serve breakfast they have like the last four it's, it's not like a huge offering but what they have is really good
0: well that's what that's what's important good and uh and what are you working on uh, this week
2: oh my gosh so we were looking at uh, who came back Ariel. Ariel came back. So when she was in the Magic Kingdom and I was started looking, you know, I was looking at the new map. I was looking at Tiana's Bayou and, and Tron and I looked at the character and greats and I noticed there were only four on the Disney map. So I went on MDE and I was comparing the two and then I went on the Disney actual website. Literally nothing matches up. So you had mentioned previously that one of the most important things to people who come to Disney World with kids is character meets and we're not just guessing at that you get like hundreds of thousands of surveys through the unofficial guide and touring plans. And so, I mean, it's facts. People respond and they say, this is really important to my kids and kids are 17 and under. So knowing that characters are super important. And I knew for a fact that there were like 15 characters around at least turns out there's 21 but 15 i decided to stalk them this week and it ended up being really popular on instagram people are saving that information so we're working on like a way to add that to the the touring plan not sure what that's going to look like or it'll be on our website Um, but i've got pictures and stuff on instagram to show you all of the characters and where they are where you can find them because it's not something you're going to find on the website you have to sort of just bump into them but like the people that listen to you guys are hyper planners. They're not like a laissez-faire type of folk. So, I mean, you want to know where you can find Chippendale and you want to know where you can find right. Aladdin and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. That was a, a good find that there were, um, so many, it, so many character greetings that weren't on MD. And that brings me back to the thing that you discovered about the Deck Tales adventure. That you are you are finding uh, ad, I uh, am adventures and quests.
2: Hyper in love with Ducktales, and I just need a friend <laughs> who is this devoted. I have found 33 missions, and I know there are more. But you force me to go to other parks, so I can't spend as much time at Epcot. Ah, you know that, yes. every time I go, okay. I play, and it is so impressive. Like you could spend four hours. There's the zombies in Germany, and the robot troll in Norway. You get prizes <laughs> like little treats and things from cast members. And even though it says one player, I feel like a lot of people are turned off by that when the play Disney app. It's totally not. Okay. So you have one of your kids like work the phone, but everybody can participate.
0: So is it only really one player?
2: It technically, it says one player, but it's not.
0: Because Laurel and I were trying to play together in Mexico and we could never get it to be anything other than one player.
2: It technically is one player, but let's just say in China, there's a secret code you have to go into the gallery and you have to tell a cast member this secret code and they give you this secret prize that has a secret message. So maybe you have one kid do that one. Somebody else does oh. UK or you like say the secret prize together them. and shout out to the cast members because they are playing along. Like they are being super sleuthy. They're not <laughs> like they're, they're really into this. The ones that I have encountered, like you have yeah. to, like you say it kind of out of the corner of your mouth and don't like you're in a, like 1920s you know gangster movie like
0: it's an episode of the americans
2: (laughs) yeah Yeah. they're totally into it and you know i look super weird i'm an old lady walking around by myself and i'm like it it's really cool i found 33 (laughs) the moon is full (laughs) (laughs) i found 33 but i and i keep begging people like for real for real tell me if you find more and um we've all decided unofficially that we're going to do a drunk ducktales meetup in december (laughs) <laughs> but you have to be serious. Like you cannot be yelling phrases.
0: 33 questions like would be like all day.
2: Oh, it can easily take you four or five hours. That's one of those things. Um, I did a little, again, I'm going to send you to this really cool Instagram that I know about. Um, there's <laughs> a lot of free things to do in Epcot that for kids that people don't take advantage of. Like people say Epcot's not for kids, big fat lie, totally for kids. There's not, more than just the kid caught. Like you have that whole Dory Explorer Scavenger Hunt thing, totally free, right. fantastic. But anyway, yes, DuckTales that's, is that's the bomb. Awesome. Catch me in Epcot playing All right, Tales. Cool.
0: <laughs> All right, I'll uh, I'll be down uh, uh, in a, in a week or so. Let's uh, let's go do a DuckTales thing. So much fun. And then uh, I'll I'll take you to Takumi because I went there, and I'll talk about it on the uh, on the next show.
2: Okay, that sounds great.
0: It does. All right, Christina, thanks for uh, thanks for coming back on. Where can uh, people find more of you?
2: Okay, so there is an Instagram, and it's. Tra- it's touring plan. I'm going to send it to you. I'm going to send it to you. You have to check it out. Okay, it's yeah, really cool. I'll,
0: yeah. I'll, it sounds great.
2: It, it, it It's a really big deal. I'll send it to you.
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you. All right. By the way, did I, did I tell you about the Takumi um uh, follow-up surveys that I
2: did? You know what? I'm a little bitter. So I don't, I mean, it's fine. You can tell me. It's whatever.
0: Well, well so I went to I went to Tekumite with uh, my friends Justin and Jeremy for, for Justin's birthday a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. And Jimmy Which PS was two was- days
2: before mine and I've been begging you to go. But it's fine. Everything's fine.
0: <laughs> the important thing is that you're not – It's not right. a big deal. Okay. Okay. So, no, Don't No, no, that's, mm-hmm. that's fine. Yeah. So we go in and it, part of it was great because Jeremy and Justin and Becky all speak Japanese. Mm-hmm. So that's always good. And it, um, Takumite has that $250 fixed price menu. It, here's the interesting thing. The food was excellent. Service was excellent. Every single thing that we ate, and it was multiple courses, every single thing that we ate was great. The Wagyu was literally the best Wagyu I've ever had anywhere. We had separate sushi courses, separate sashimi courses. Everything was fantastic. So I go back and look at the surveys, trying to figure out like how do other people rate Takumite? Because I think it's hmm. one of the best dining experiences in Walt Disney World and probably the best meal you could have Dollar for dollar in a theme park, oh, yeah. right? And the surveys are like eighty percent approval, a little bit less than that. I'm wow. like four out of five. You're like, what's what's going on? Like the twenty percent of people who do, don't like it, what is it? So I started writing emails to everyone who had sent in a survey <laughs> since it reopened. I'm like, you know, hey, you ready this? You know, you ready this? A thumbs down? Why? And I can classify the answers in two different categories. One is it was just too expensive. Like people,
2: yeah, are that not makes comfortable sense. paying. But you know that go. going in?
0: You do. You do. the um, The other interesting thing is, people thought it was the other restaurant. They thought it was Tepanito. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh. And they're like, yeah, I didn't think Tepanito was that great, yeah, you know, oh, because no. and the, and here's what here's what keyed me into it. I I wrote back and I was like, you know, I wrote to somebody and they're like, you know, we've got places like this in my town mm-hmm. that are just as good. I'm like, you've got a place. In your town that is like Takumite. Wow. And because that's impressive. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. I, you know, I mean, you know, if you live in New York, I I, I get that or a big city. Uh, And they're like, oh, yeah, we we meant the other place. So it's actually it's actually going to lead to us redesigning the survey Mm -hmm. that we send out where we include either pictures or descriptions of the individual restaurants so that we know that, you know, the thing we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Awesome.
1: Okay, well, that, that would definitely take the artificial drag off of the survey.
0: Well, no. Wow. Yeah, okay. I think it will uh, I think it'll help. So yeah, so we'll look forward to that. Mm-hmm. And we've got our second special star on today's show. She's also a returning guest, and she's a museum specialist at the Smithsonian Museum of American History and author of the new book, Mirror, Mirror for Us All, Disney Theme Parks and America's National Narratives. Please welcome back to the show, Bethany Bemis. How's it going, Bethany?
3: It's going well. How are you guys?
0: We are well. All right. So, uh, so Bethany, uh, I love the book. I read it uh, when it came out. Uh, let's talk about it first, and then we'll talk about uh, some of the stuff that you're doing. So, the um, you say that the book looks at Disney's physical spaces in relation to America's collective memory and identity. What does that mean?
3: That means that the Disney parks themselves, you know, apart from all the other Disney offerings and things like that, play a very special role in how Americans think of themselves. And so I wanted to do sort of a deep dive into what that meant. Um, and the result of that is this little book.
0: And you talk about not only the theme parks, but you talk about sort of the history of Disney as a as a media company as well, dating back to Walt's very first television shows. So one of my favorite lines you have in the book is, is, is this, we must meet the people where they are, and they are at Disney World. And actually, I quoted this back to you yesterday, and you said that that's the second time someone's told me this in two yes. days. We just so so that line seems to resonate with readers, right? Mm-hmm.
3: Well, I mean, there are you know a couple of independent studies out there on Disney visitorship that say that within the U.S., mm-hmm. between anywhere between eighty and ninety percent of people will visit a Disney theme park at some point in their lifetime. That is a massive mm-hmm. impact. Right. So, I mean, the people really are they're at Disney World, and if You know, academics want to really understand what the public is thinking and feeling and saying about America. I don't think there's a better place for them to start.
1: I just remember once talking with somebody at Kodak and they were mentioning, I mean, this was back in the era of like the photomat where, you know, you couldn't get to drop your your reels of film off to be developed, but they had this ridiculously high percentage of, of the photos developed in America You know, sixty to seventy percent of them at one point involved photos taken inside of a Disney theme park. This is the film we're developing inside of the country.
3: That's
0: incredible. I I wonder if there's any other cultural institution in America that has that much coverage. Like, do you think eighty or ninety percent of Americans have gone to a Major League Baseball game or an NFL game or been to a Broadway show? Like, I would, I would bet the answer is no on all those things. Yeah. I
3: don't think that we have the same cultural expectation on the part of families to go to a Broadway show or go to a theme park. But if you talk to, you know, most sort of middle class American families, they they have this goal to take their children to a Disney theme park. And for whatever reason that they're doing that, um, it is having the effect of creating all of these sort of collective memories in all of these different generations as they go through these parks.
0: So you mentioned collective memories, and uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite anecdotes in the book, and that's how when Disney put out the Davy Crockett TV series back in the 50s, for a lot of Americans, they treated that as historical fact, right? Mm-hmm. And and a lot of them didn't know the story of Davy Crockett, and they were watching it week by week to see how the story turned out. One, do you, Do you remember the anecdote from the book?
3: The best anecdote from the book um, that I found was that there was a family that actually wrote to the Disney studio. So, you know, today the Disney Crockett's um, have been stitched together. You can watch them all as one film, but they came out in a a series. And uh, one family wrote to um, Disney that if they didn't uh, get Crockett out of the Alamo safely, that they were not going to keep watching Disney's programming.
1: Uh. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs)
3: And even even Disney did not, you know, go that far in Mm -hmm. in their (laughs) vision of history. But people, it was was a very intense cultural moment that Davy Crockett created. I mean, there were schools that were changing their curriculums the day after the shows came out so that the kids could come in and talk about it. Because they were going to be talking about it, you know, whether the teachers wanted them to or not. Mm -hmm. And it became a real teaching moment.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, that's a that's a it's a great story. I because I, I, I envision Walt getting that letter and then handing it to some you know <laughs> poor secretary to say, please respond to this family. <laughs> like, like where where do you go from that? <laughs> Maybe throw in a
1: coonskin cap. Okay, yeah, yeah, exactly. Placate them.
0: <laughs> you also talk about Walt's Walt the Walt Disney Studios effort during the wars and its cooperation with the American military. And that started with World War II?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, it really starts, you know, immediately upon the bombing of Pearl Harbor, right? They The government requisitions half of Disney Studios and says, you know, we're coming in here. We're going to be using this as a base from which to protect the Lockheed Martin plant, which is down the street. But even before that, Disney's producing propaganda for the Canadian government during World War II. Really? Yeah. The first shorts that they do are for the Canadian government. For their treasury, I believe.
0: Wait, the first the first propaganda films that Disney did for World War II were for the Canadians.
3: I am I am almost positive. I'll look that up for your show notes.
0: I can back that up. Yeah. Was it about protecting the maple syrup uh, industry? <laughs> Was it like what?
3: I want to say. Wasn't it
0: reusing
1: footage from like the Three Little Pigs? To, that sounds to...
3: familiar.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, well, that's what's so weird about the film. You know, there there were, of course. The actual how to put rivets on an airplane to make them flush, that sort of thing. But there were also, frankly, a, a number of films that were done to suggest to people you want to be, you know, patriotic or buy a war bond.
3: And I think I think that that's what they did for Canada as well, were, we're, we're hmm. war bond promotional films in the beginning.
0: Okay, now I need to go find those. That'll be my uh, my homework for the end of the show. All right, so you, you mentioned that they did films directly related to the war effort, like Donald Gets Drafted, Right.
3: So they're, you know, amusing, but they're also, you know, very serious, right? If Donald can serve something, he's not even very good at it, but we'll take him anyway.
0: And the reason why I mentioned this one is I saw a Warner Brothers film on YouTube around getting drafted as well. And it was essentially a message to those about to be drafted saying, it sounds scary, but you'll be fine. Was that also the message in Donald gets drafted? Like what was what was Disney trying to say here? Who was who was the audience, and what was the message?
3: I mean, I think that it's both. It was sort of a crossover for Disney, right? It's both a message of yes, all of us can serve uh, in some way, and it's as you said, less threatening than it sounds, um, unless you are you know superior officer Pete, right? Which I guess is, is the real issue uh, for Donald, but <laughs> also that Disney can still produce entertainment during this time that is. Sort of tasteful and in line with um, where the country is. I think it's their sort of pitch to to find what their sort of niche in the market is going to be that's both going to enable them to make money and do something right. for the country.
0: So were they um, were they producing these films at cost, or they were actually managing to earn a slight profit from them?
3: Most of the propaganda films were done at cost. So anything that, that the government requested, it was it was done at cost.
0: But the films also kept uh, the Disney studio in the American public mind, right? So that when Disney came out with other films, they could promote those. It got a little strange,
1: though. I mean, for example, uh, The New Spirit. Exhibitors actually kind of got pissy about this because Disney made this for the government to, again, could compel people to go pay their income tax to help with the war effort. But the notion was that the exhibitors were like, why should we pay for a new Disney short to air in our theater when we have this one that we got for free from the government? And it did kind of bite Disney in the butt for a while.
0: Really? Because yeah. uh, uh, exhibitors didn't want to pay for new films?
1: Well, again, they had the, you know, in fact, uh, there was this The New Spirit, and I want to say The Spirit of 43, a second film that was also supposed to compel people to to get their income tax paid on time. And same thing. It was like, why should I pay for a new Disney short when I get this one for free? But, but again, Walt, it's like, okay, we'll we'll do it. And at the same time, as you mentioned, they they were getting paid by the Pentagon and the army and that sort of thing for all these training films, like you know how to to spot planes and the like.
3: Right, how to turn that down? And it, you know, it, it both boosts Disney and bites Disney in the butt in the sense that it it really allies them with the United States, right? That makes them extremely representative of the United States and within the U S that's seen as a positive. Now, you know, there's a story in the book about, um, a Japanese, um, politician who to this day is very vocally anti American and anti Disney, because he remembers, um, being shot at by planes that had Mickey mouse painted on the side. That's not what the Disney company wants to hear. Probably. Right. But for better or worse, right, this, 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 it is this World War II moment, I think, that, that cements Disney as, you know, this symbolically American company.
0: Did we see the same thing in, like, Germany and Italy at the, uh, at the end of World War II, where there were Germans like, yeah, I'm not sure I want to go visit a, uh, a Disney theme park because I remember the bombs?
3: Well, you know, Germany sort of uh, mixed most uh, Disney films. So if you were watching a Disney film, you probably were of a certain political persuasion. No, good point. At the time,
0: yeah. All right, uh, moving on to the uh, the next chapter. It's uh, Disneyland and Walt Disney World experiencing history and identity at Disney parks. And here you talk about how Disney represents history and identity physically in the parks. And you concentrate only on specific lands, right? That's mostly a time thing. Yeah. Yeah,
3: that was mostly... I'd I'd love to, in the future, sort of go back and do more lands. But um, I, I focused on the lands that to me, most embody these, like, American values.
0: Okay, and they are?
3: And they are uh, Main Street, Frontierland, uh, Liberty Square, and Tomorrowland.
0: And what are some of the things that uh, that you notice in those lands that sort of exemplify how Disney portrays history and identity?
3: I think that, um, you know, when I was writing it, what, what sort of struck me most was the way in which Obviously the experience at Disney is is uh, meant to be a good one right yep.
0: um,
3: but the side effect of that of course is that if you're you're on main street say and you're experiencing this this turn of the century town that you have never experienced in your life because it doesn't exist anymore the feeling that you are getting about this time period is based on all of these cues that Disney is giving you right it it tastes sweet it smells like fresh baked bread um, everyone is right. you know very excited uh, about the train coming to town. So ultimately what that does for the visitor is create this sense that that time period was full of happiness and light, which is not necessarily true for everyone, right? Um, and that's not right. to say that that's necessarily a bad thing, but it is just something that that is interesting for researchers to be sort of cognizant of and for people to be cognizant of when they're there is how the sort of melding of this fun Disney experience with this also um, experience of a, of a certain time in history creates these sort of false memories.
0: Right. When I was um, So I'd, I'd read a preview of the book before I did my IAPA talk in November. And one of the points I made at the IAPA talk that I learned from your book was every themed attraction has a social, political, and economic point of view. You just have to figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Main Street, and I think you point this out in your book, right? One of the implicit messages is is on the uh, the benefits of entrepreneurship.
3: Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, you know, that was a theme throughout Walt's life. You know, he had benefited, right, from, from free enterprise and being an entrepreneur. Um, and I think that when he thought about this time period, you know, that was what he saw, right, was this period of opportunity. And so that's what he chose to represent in his park. Now, if you think about, um, you know, the, the, the park itself or the, the Main Street idea is in part based on, Fort Collins, Colorado. Right, what brings Fort Collins its prosperity at the turn of the century, and what makes it this vision, right, of perfect economic moment in the 1900s, is the sugar beet industry, which one relies heavily on immigrant labor, uh, and two apparently smells really bad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so wait, we're not getting we're not getting the smell of, uh, of processed beets on Main Street.
3: Apparently, and I'm not a beet processor um but i actually, <laughs> actually there was someone at the time who uh said that the the scent was comparable to a slaughterhouse in midsummer. Oh hey.
0: okay i've i've actually been to a slaughterhouse in summer which is a completely <laughs> different story and let me just say that that is not a pleasant smell. That is super interesting. But this is also where you reference the smellitizer.
3: Exactly, right? So what you're smelling on Main Street to that might to you now smell like, you know, oh, the turn of the century and the, you know, the confectionaries start pumping out candies or whatever. You know, you're actually walking down a street that probably would have smelled apparently like a slaughterhouse in midsummer mixed with a horse manure, which Disney also doesn't allow, you know, to change its streets, right? Uh, and of yeah. course, we understand why Disney's not going to make it smell like a slaughterhouse in midsummer. Right. But it's yeah. interesting, you know, if you're thinking about what life was really like for people, this ain't it.
0: Fantastic. And uh, so... Beyond Main Street, what uh, what other lands uh, piqued your interest in, uh, for this chapter?
3: Liberty Square is obviously a, a really interesting one, of course, for its, you know, direct representation of a time period. Um, but I also thought a lot about Frontierland in ways that I hadn't before, um, in particular how, you know, when one is sort of standing uh, along the river, the, the sounds that you hear are not just evocative oh. of the time period, but also sort of place you on the frontier in the sense that you know if you hear sort of the riverboat and the train in the background it's placing you on the other side of it right it's literally placing you on the frontier away from these sounds of sort of humanity and travel and so even just sort of even think though things like that that disney probably didn't necessarily think about right they were like oh there's you know there's a boat in frontier land because there's steamboats on the mississippi river all of those things contribute both to the theming and then your sense of, of where you are in time.
0: Oh, that's uh, fantastic! And if you if you stand in front of the Frontierland Shooting Arcade, you can hear rifles along with the train in the uh and the riverboat. So that is definitely a frontier uh, sort of soundtrack.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And you you know you now like I associate Frontierland with the smell of um, like roasted nuts, which is definitely not something that they they really were having a lot of on the frontier. Um, <laughs> but I will never, I will never, sure. you know, think of the frontier without that set. Down.
0: That's, Doesn't uh, that's, yes. Uh, it. Lewis and Clark nuts for nuts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you, uh, you mentioned, uh, in another chapter, uh, that protesting at the Disney parks is sort of an American, uh, not tradition, but definitely something that's been done before. And you have a, uh, you have a, a talk here about the, uh, the Yippies protest at Disneyland, right?
3: The Yippies <laughs> protest is like so fascinating. And, I actually got some really great photographs of it uh, during the call that, that you guys uh, really helped us with at the museum about um, looking for photographs from the public. And I got all these photographs. So, oh,
0: so you, got, you, you got photographs from the public of the yippies? Yes. Well, Disneyland? one guy.
3: One guy sent me photos. Uh, he was there that day. And he had
0: wow. okay.
3: gone through and taken all these photographs. And in one of the photographs, he was lucky enough to sort of go throughout the day. Right? So um, I okay. published some of those in the, in the book. But there's, so there's photographs of the yippies sort of gathering on Tom Sawyer Island. There's photographs of them on Main Street, which is where the confrontation between sort of the Straits and the yippies really really happened, right? Okay. Because the story that I've uncovered or heard or that there was someone who tried to raise the yippie flag next to the American flag in Main Square, in, uh, uh, in okay. Town Square. And the, the yippie flag featured a large marijuana leaf so, if you were someone who you know was really really a fan of the red, white and blue, this was a big insult to you um so you know from from all the accounts that I've read, that's what really sets off like the the incidents of uh violence that that happened that day, and which is really only you know one guy turning to that guy and going, "How dare you you know raise your stupid flag next to the flag of my country right. and sort of yipping, ripping it out his hands. But there's also this story from uh, some cast members that were there that day that say. Dick Nunes, right, president of Disneyland, of course, is, yep. is also out, and that he hauls the guy over and punches him in the face. Oof.
0: <laughs> it, it, was he wearing shorts when he did it?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Whether he did that you know, because he, he was uh, affronted for the United States or for Disneyland is really hard to say. But in the photographs that I was sent, there's a guy that just looks an awful lot like Dick Nunes. They're not of a quality that I can prove it, but I kind of want to believe that this guy who is seen in the <laughs> photographs hauling one of the yippies out a side door on Main Street is actually Dick Nudis. I can't prove <laughs> uh, it, well, I
1: Well, you know, the weird part of it is, is I want to say Dick Nudis has just recently pub- published his memoirs, and Dick steps ar- around
0: this... F- uh, from live- if this touch of limitations has run out, Dick, come on.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there <laughs> there is a story at one point, I want to say, that, that Dick, Calls a long-haired offstage uh, only to find out that as the, the wig comes off in his hands, he just grabbed an undercover policeman
0: who was supposedly watching the hippies. <laughs> <laughs> and in the photograph that Bethany, you have in the book is the Anaheim police were actually in the park on that day because you've got them on Main Street, USA, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: They're lining Main Street with their uh batons. It's a very... They- it just be an image
0: no, absolutely
1: um, absolutely. And Disney did its damnedest to keep those images out of the public eye. It's only like in the last ten or fifteen years that there's this amazing file of photos that were taken at Disneyland that day by Disney's own people from like, for example, looking down from the rooftops on Main Street at that line of policemen that have you know finally begun to filter out. so. But, yeah, very, very memorable images.
0: All right, Bethany, the, uh, the last chapter I want to talk about is, uh, is titled Retheming, Visualizing a Changing America at Disney Parks. And you mentioned here that Disney has a long history of updating its parks to reflect current social views. And you mentioned uh, two things in particular. One was that uh, alcohol was once not sold in Walt Disney World, and now there's a thing called Drinking Around the World, also that smoking was once permitted inside the parks and now is not, right?
3: Yeah, those are, I think, sort of the um, safest things for Disney to to sort of point to, right? When they have to talk about social change, Um, because today there are very few people who would be okay with with smoking uh, in the parks. It's not contentious um, to talk about now. Whereas some of the other things, you know, we just saw with Splash Mountain, they, they get really contentious when I think that what we're seeing is actually just a continuation of things like allowing alcohol or not allowing smoking. It's really just Disney keeping up with sort of a changing America.
0: Do you get a sense of when Disney decides to make that change? Like, is there an an indicator that they looked at to say, you know what, um, uh, this percentage of Americans no longer support smoking in public? Like, you know, is it like 50%? Is it 75%? Is it 80%? Or how how do they feel their way along? these sorts of things you
3: mean i'd love to know the like exact answer to that um of yeah. course but i you know i suspect so the one one example that i talk about is is when disney sort of starts wading into the fray um of lgbtq representation in the united states which right. it doesn't you know for disney it kind of comes to a head with a confrontation between um a young couple Uh, who were uh, trying to to dance together, two men men who were trying to dance together at Disneyland um, and then ended up suing Disney when they were kicked out of the park for doing so. And very quickly after that, Disney starts to sort of update its policies, right? They start to allow same-sex dancing, which they say is just because all the kids want to dance together. And then they give benefits to same-sex partners um, of their cast members. And that comes at a time... When A, this is a question that a lot of corporations are struggling with. And Disney is among the first uh, corporations to give those benefits, which has the effect of both pushing forward sort of the progress that the the country is making in that um, era, but in also Mm -hmm. sort of representing the mainstream culture at the time, which really was changing in favor of looking differently at members uh, of the LGBT plus community. And I think that Disney had internal pressure, right? From cast members who were um, in that community. Um, But also that they are reading sort of the the studies that come out that say an increasing number. And my guess is that as the the numbers start to creep up, that they are tracking these sort of trajectories, right? That it's not once it hits 50%, we do this, right? But it's that like, look, every year the number of people who say they're okay with X or they don't like X... Is increasing, So this is where the country is going and that's where we have to go to.
0: That makes sense. And when it comes to things like, um, you know, employee benefits, that has to do a lot with the fact that Disney's a business, right? And in order to hire, you know, people, in order to hire qualified people, you need to offer competitive benefits. And that was eventually seen as a competitive benefit, right?
1: It's also worth noting here that in the case of LGBTQ issues, Disney, kind of an interesting bit of sleight of hand. When they acquired Cap City's ABC in 1995... ABC Cap Cities already had this this policy in place. And, and Disney was genuinely struggling at the time to the effect of we want our, our gay employees to ha- enjoy the same benefits as as our straight employees. And it's like, oh, gee, we bought Cap City and those regulations are are grandfathered into the corporate corporation. Oh, darn it. We have to give we, them to
0: everyone.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and that was the thing. It was their get out of jail free card. Yeah. But – Disney does pay attention to what's going on in society, but I think, as we've just seen in the past year with its its struggles with with Florida's governor, it's just sometimes when you take a step forward, you are then forced to take a step back, largely because of issues that are out of
0: your control. Bethany, you also uh, talk about uh, women through the Disney park lens and also minority representation on Disney landscapes. What um, what examples did you have in mind there?
3: Um, I think with with women. It's very subtle. We don't see the same kind of cultural, large cultural confrontations that we're we're seeing right now with minority representation as much, right? I mean, when they removed, you know, the redhead from Pirates of the Caribbean, that was about as like contentious as it got. But long before that, there were issues of what women could do when they worked at Disneyland. Women women were cast in sort of hostess roles, right? And men were cast in driving roles. So you didn't have Hmm. women driving you around a great example would be the you know canal story boats, right? Like there's a there's a narrator, there's a driver who gets to do what, and that changes over time. It, it was a men's role for a while, it was a woman's role for a while.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. There was uh, so uh, when Disneyland originally opened, drivers were always men.
3: Yeah, women were not allowed to drive. You know, you couldn't be a conductor on the train, you couldn't drive the Jungle Cruise. boat. it just wasn't something that huh. was acceptable. And powers that be at Disneyland in the '70s say that they attempted to have women come in and drive the the Jungle Cruise boats, but that they found it, they, the women found it too difficult.
0: Too difficult to drive a boat on a rail?
3: Because it was a physical job that required moving boats, yes. But (laughs) (laughs) as the the 70s move on, right, we've got Walt Disney World now, and Walt Disney World, when it opened, did not have the same prohibitions in place uh, that Disneyland did in the 50s. And so there's a, a particular uh, female cast member from Disneyland who visits Walt Disney World and sees women driving the Jungle Cruise boats. And she comes back and says, excuse me, I want that job. And that really ends up um, changing it for good, right? So now you get off. If, as long as you can deliver, like, a really bad joke, then you can be on the Disney Cruise, you know. On, a, on the Jungle Cruise, <laughs> road. It's regardless of your desert. The,
0: yeah, that's the one qualification, I think, right? <laughs> yeah.
3: Bad sense of humor.
0: That's fantastic.
3: And so I think it's, it's the roles of women at Disney is, is very subtle. And now we're seeing it sort of play out in the princess space, right? That the princesses are sort of being the lens with with which we look at them is they're attempting to shift it. Um, if you, you know, see all the merchandise, it's more about how they're strong and they're brave and they're this and they're that. And they're not, not just, you know, asleep and like waiting for someone to save them. But I also think it's, it's the way that cast members in the parks uh, were treated, which is, is most interesting to me, because that's what has a real impact in sort of everyday life.
0: Are there other examples of, uh, of roles that women couldn't have um, in the parks?
3: I think that, um, you know, driver was, was the main one, and once you kind of got, once women were able to do that, then they felt like they had really, you know, come into their own as Disney park employees.
0: And uh, Bethany, you also uh, talk about, uh, in the book, minority representation on Disney landscapes. Can you give an example of that?
3: Um, one sort of Really, sort of nice, like bite-sized example that I um, point to lately is that when um, at Walt Disney World they reopened Main Street Confectionery after you know closing it down, they had this sort of themed column at the front and and the windows on the outside that talked about um, a, a bake-off, right? The sort mm-hmm. of classic American, you know, like we're gonna all bake a pie and see whose apple pie is the best. But the contestants were extremely diverse. And one of them, in fact, um, Saul Fitz, is, to my knowledge still, the only acknowledged LGBTQ plus character represented in a Disney theme park. They talk about uh, his baking for his partner, Gary Henderson. And, and I think, you know, PR acknowledged that, yes, he's a, it's a same sex couple.
0: Oh, you got PR to actually acknowledge it. That's so it's it's canon.
3: I think so. Yeah. But he's still the only one. I'm sure more are coming. But uh, in any case. I think that's a really great example of ways in which Disney can and does sort of quietly shift the narrative. You know, right, they're not radically time, yeah. changing Main Street. They're just adding a little bit of spice and diversity into it, right? So that the, those main values are still there of, you know, prosperity yeah. and enterprise and da 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 But it's like everybody gets to participate in those values.
0: I mean, that's the thing, right? If, you, if 80 or 90% of Americans, you know, visit a Disney theme park, then those 80 to 90% of Americans need to see themselves in the parks, both as cast members and, uh, you know, in the attractions as well. So,
3: Yeah, I think that's not only probably the right thing to do, but also I'm guessing the financially responsible thing to do as well.
0: <laughs> it's good and good business. All right, and Bethany, you had mentioned that we now have an opening date for the Smithsonian <laughs> Museum of American History's exhibit, Mirror, Mirror Reflections of America in Disney Parks. And what date is that, Bethany?
3: The show will be open on April 15th, which is tax day. So if you want to treat yourself, I guess, after finishing your taxes, you could come to the museum and see our exhibit, which will finally be on the floor. And it feels like it's very soon. We're all really excited to share with everyone.
0: And it's running for a full year, right? So this is a major exhibit for the museum.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's about a thousand square feet. um, And I have put as much Disney stuff into that thousand square feet as I possibly could, including Several hundred pictures um, submitted by the public who are incredibly generous with us, um, with their photos and their stories.
0: And uh, are, you, uh, are you going to be on hand uh, at the launch, at the opening?
3: I'll do my best. Yeah. No, I mean, I live near here. Of course I am. I'll come down.
0: <laughs> yeah. Jimmy, you and I have to get out there to uh, to see this when it opens for uh, for two reasons. One is uh, I'm super excited about it. And the second is that I absolutely do not want to visit Washington, D.C. during the summer. So spring You're is a not. better idea. All right, so Bethany, uh, April 15th, 2023, for the uh, exhibit at the Smithsonian Museum of American History, and your book now is out. That's Mirror, Mirror for Us All, Disney Theme Parks and America's National Narratives. You can get that on Amazon, right?
3: Yeah, the easiest way.
1: Fantastic. And it, honestly, folks, it is worth it alone for the transcript from the Oval Office between Nixon and uh, J.R. Haldeman. <laughs> The one you're, you're just talking about. about. Hey, get out know, should we attend the opening Walt Disney World? What do you think? You know, Maybe this, we
0: swing by for the weekend. There, <laughs> there we go. It's, it's a Richard Nixon doing vacation planning, but it's there a transcript go. in the Oval Office. It's so great, <laughs> <laughs> Bethany. We're Unintended
3: gonna, consequences I of his actions. Right? You know the the oh. two things
0: that, the two things I get out of the recording system that he had installed were yeah. Watergate and this. <laughs> That's
3: all you need to know.
0: Bethany, where can people reach you on social media?
3: Uh, I am at BB on Twitter, um, and that is where I post most of my Disney-related content.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks for being on the show, and we look forward to uh, to seeing you in D.C. in April. Very special. Yes, come on down. Can't wait. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim gives us the history and future of Disney's Swiss Family Treehouse. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, the Swiss family treehouse, the uh, the mainstay of Adventureland, the thing that everyone walks by on the way to Jungle Cruise and Pirates, <laughs> what, uh, what about it? It's changing, right?
1: Well, yeah, and everything old is new again. Because remember, in March of 99, the Swiss family treehouse closed at Disneyland, and After, uh, and in fact, Tony Baxter talks about uh, why this was done. At one point, Len... The Swiss Family Treehouse was, well, not necessarily the most popular attraction at Walt Disney World just because of its physical setup. Only 1,200 people an hour could go through it. And in fact, what with the, uh, the way it was set up with the three rooms and the 68 steps up and the 69 steps down, only 200 people could be in the attraction at any one time. But because it was a C-ticket when it opened, and C-ticket at Disneyland was 35 cents. And the fact that it only took three people to operate the Swiss Family Treehouse. You needed one person at the front turnstile collecting Mm -hmm. tickets. You needed another cast member up at the top to make sure that people weren't stepping over the the velvet ropes and, you know, going and and lying down in the (laughs) boot. There we go. All right. And then you needed a third cast member at the exit to make sure nobody was going up the back steps. This was the most profitable attraction in the park, uh, really? you know, because, well, it it only took uh, twenty one thousand dollars a year that that covered the salaries of the the three cast members. Likewise, these you know the poor janitorial staff that had to go up the the sixty eight steps and come down the sixty nine steps. And then I want to say there was $16,000 a year just on maintenance. Uh, You know, for example, maintaining that water wheel system that, by the way, 200 gallons of water, you know, were traveling through that thing at any one time. I mean, heavy duty machinery to do the equivalent. But I want to say in 1965, Len, this one attraction made $313,000
0: in profit for Disneyland. Wow. I mean, that's good. That's good money now. well no uh, that's it exactly and when
1: you compared the 30 people to operate safely mind you the Autopia over in tomorrowland or for that matter the jungle cruise uh, just downstairs you needed 26 people to operate that the fact that you could get the swiss family treehouse running up and running each day with with just three employees who by the way (laughs) you know often as not were supplementing their salary with kind of a neat trick have you heard about what they used to do with the the boys' beds up in the be- the, the crows' nest in the Swiss Family Treehouse? No, this is the bedroom at the top of the stairs, right? Very top of the stairs. Uh, well, evidently, one enterprising cast member one day is like, well, wait a minute. Let's conduct a psychological experiment here. And he, what he literally does is he empties his pockets. He throws like a handful of coins and a dollar on the bed and okay. then just steps back and watches what happens and sure enough members of the public you know who are standing outside the velvet rope so oh people threw money in the bed okay i'll do that too honey and give me a so,
0: quarter yeah,
1: yeah, yeah no that's it exactly so by the end of the shift this guy had collected i want to say you know upwards of 20 dollars. Off of seating the bed, and he would do this every shift that he worked. And it was like, you know, he was doubling and tripling his salary again that he was making each day at Disneyland. And this continued until a supervisor came through one day and said, Hey, what's with the money on the bed? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I have no idea, sir. You know, let's contact those people who
0: do the the, the Snow White wishing well. We'll donate this to them. Well, the funny thing is, is like, if you look at what um, the average worker made in 1960, it was probably under six thousand dollars a year. So if this dude's making a hundred bucks a week, yeah, he's he's yeah. he's living large. No, <laughs> oh, no, 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 absolutely. But here's the thing that,
1: that, again, to get to the point in, in 99, what happened was that that 1,200 people an hour, once the ticket book system went away at Disneyland, and remember the ticket book system used to sort of artificially spread people around the park. You'd look and yeah. it's like, okay, I got three C tickets left over. Well, what's a C ticket? What can we get on? And it's like, well, all right, we get the treehouse. Let's go on that. That's right here. When they switched to the passport system, people were no longer forced to, okay, I got eight tickets left over, I got B tickets, let's go ride the omnibus or that sort of thing. People began to sort of, okay, The treehouse looks like work. In fact, there used to be a joke during, you know, it was called the Swiss Family Stairmaster, you know, because it was like, oh, God, I have to climb this thing. So by the late 90s, the hourly attendance at the Swiss Family Treehouse had fallen from 1,200 people an hour to 300 people an hour. And Tony Baxter, on the other hand, he sees a rough cut of Tarzan. And notices that the movie ends with with Tarzan and Jane remaining in the jungle, and just like well, they're going to need a place to live, and it's like I have an idea. So they shut down the attraction for three months. They retool it so it now looks like the treehouse that the Tarzan's parents assemble at the beginning of that film. Okay. And the actor James MacArthur, depending on what age you are, you you either know him, you know he's Dano from the original Hawaii Five O, or you know, he's one of the the sons in the Disney's Swiss Family Robinson movie. And uh, Disney actually invited him to the park the day they shut down the Swiss Family Treehouse to get it ready to be the Tarzan Treehouse. Really? Yeah. And, and James, there's this wonderful quote from James. He says, I don't know how to feel about this because, you know, I feel like
0: I outlived my memorial. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> I wonder if they let him keep any of this stuff like, uh, here's your here's your bed. There we go. But the
1: Tarzan Treehouse shut down in the middle of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it is coming back as the Adventureland Treehouse. And again, what's kind of interesting here is they split the difference. They're bringing back a lot of the touches from the original uh, Swiss family uh, attraction. Again, That again, that opened at Disneyland in November of, of 1962. In fact, I highly recommend folks go to YouTube. Search term should be Swiss Family Treehouse John Mills, because John Mills, the the actor who actually played the father in the Swiss Family Treehouse, it's this wonderful three minute and forty two second long video of Walt himself taking John Mills and his daughter Haley, who you may uh, know, and John's wife Mary, through the swiss family treehouse just prior to it opening and and what you'll especially enjoy land if you you at the very beginning of the film you see them walk in from the right and if you look behind them it's the absolutely flattened construction site for pirates of the caribbean new orleans square
0: <laughs> the, the, they didn't have a, a a giant green wall up at that point it was just like yeah, just don't no look at that. no they did just know. don't look at the they giant hole not.
1: But you can look at this thing pristine, just as Walt had it created. And it says a lot about the Imagineers at this time when Walt initially said, because the, the Swiss Family uh, film came out in December of 1960. So think about it. They had the attraction open in the park in uh, you know less than two years. It opened uh, November of 62 there's these wonderful full-page ads that Disney bought to announce a lot you know that Disneyland reaches new heights of entertainment <laughs> you know it's like when Walt said I want a Swiss family treehouse in the park the Imagineers initially fought him on
0: it and they're like nah, no one wants to walk up all those stairs
1: that's it exactly and more to the point right across the street on Tom Sawyer's Island kids want to get up in a treehouse there's one right there you know and the Imagineers were arguing that on the back of you know, look, you know, you've only given us seven million dollars, and we have to use this money to start work on uh, not only uh, Pirates of the Caribbean but also New Orleans Square. In fact, there's some amazing photos of uh, in '62 of them drink, digging the foundation of the Haunted Mansion where they had to go, you know, they actually had to drain the Rivers of America because they were digging the two elevator shafts for the stretching room. And then at the same time, at the other edge of Adventureland, they're building the Tahitian Terrace. They're laying the foundation work for tiki birds. This is when they, they're during the same window of time, they're adding the sacred elephant bathing pool to the jungle cruise. There's a lot going on, yeah. And and, and Walt wants a quarter of a million dollars for the Swiss Family Treehouse. And, you know, Walt, we only have so much time. We only have so much money. And it's like, where you're asking us to build this yeah. is where the pipe runs from the Jungle Cruise to the Rivers of America. They shared a water system.
0: We have to reroute some plumbing now. We didn't. Yeah, it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of yeah. The supports
1: to hold up this six tons of steel—that's just the undercarriage of the house. The concrete had to go down forty-two feet. Oh right, because yeah, you still have to worry about wind load and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it exactly. But while talking with the imaginators it's okay. Swiss Family Treehouse, or Swiss Family Robinson, directed by Ken Anakin. Gentlemen, I want to point out that the last film that Ken Anakin directed for our studios, Third Man on the Mountain, you you may recall the attraction that's based on that movie, The Matterhorn, Mm -hmm. our most popular attraction in the park. And Ken has given us another film right now. So build it. Yes. (laughs) And that's where we are now, that the folks at Disneyland right now are hoping with this new Theme, a very loose theme for the now the Adventureland Treehouse, because as the story goes, you won't just encounter the Swiss family there and Tarzan. It's quite likely when this reopens later this year, you'll get to meet a certain number of characters from Encanto. Oh, that's fantastic.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know what? Uh, a house, a tree, it's a very flexible layout. It's an open concept, Jim. When you think about this, when it was built mid-century, there you go. Mid-century, <laughs> exactly. Open exactly. When does it reopen? <laughs> is it this year? It's one of these
1: situations where they first want to make sure that Mickey and Minnie's runaway railway, which, by the way, is has been doing uh, previews this week and, and getting very high marks. People especially seem to like the queue uh for this attraction but it's like okay let's make sure that's opened and and that's fine and then we'll pivot to opening the adventureland treehouse but what i'm hearing is spring 2023 and again as you pointed out with our extendo opening of the you know the rodeo barbecue at at toy story landed um you know, at, at Disney's Hollywood Studios, could be a, a, a very large range of days before that actually opens. Okay, but this year. We'll get it this year. But
0: this year. But this year. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Hopefully it'll be open by the time uh, we go out there. We'll see. Well, here's open. Here's open. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and Gmail Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's show, we've got our hands on the first guest survey ever sent out by Disneyland, including the results. And Jim talks about the first day that Disneyland went to a seven-day-a-week schedule back in 1985. You think return to office is controversial now? Just wait. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Leonard, TouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's moderating Conversations with Birds. And a look at the complex world of our feathered friends, including their role in ecosystems and their epic migration journeys. On Saturday, February 18th, 2023, at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University on Benjamin Franklin Parkway in beautiful downtown Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.